Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Professor Andrea Morello. Andrea Morello is the Professor of Quantum Engineering in the School of Electrical Engineering and Telecommunication at the University of New South Wales, Sydney. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss fascinating science and engineering of conceptualizing and building quantum computers. Professor Andrea Morello will help us to unpack and tackle questions such as what a quantum computer is and how we build a quantum computer. Andrea, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much, Wasim. Thank you for inviting me to contribute to your podcast. Let us start with a basic question. What is a quantum computer and what makes a quantum computer different from classical and conventional computers? Well, let me start from uh, establishing what is a classical conventional computer. So then it's easier to explain how different a quantum computer is. So, you know, everybody uses classical conventional computers. You and I are using it to communicate with each other and record this podcast. People use it in their mobile phones to uh, speak to each other, to access all sorts of apps and tools. And the way that classical computers operate is by using binary logic. So in a classical computer, you have information encoded in the form of binary variables, which means zeros and ones, which allow you to uh, compute any arbitrary function that you may want to calculate. Right. So then the job of computer programmers is to devise uh, software and algorithms that execute certain instructions that arrive at some result that you're interested in, right? So if you take a little pocket calculator, it will do sums and subtractions and multiplications for you. If you take the computer we are using now to record this podcast, there will be some device that turns my voice, which is given as an electrical signal to the microphone of my headset, digitizes it into a digital signal and then compresses it and then sends it over the internet to you, right? So what is actually going between me and you as we speak is a stream of binary numbers that represent the volume of my voice as I speak to you, right? And then once it reaches your computer, your computer may want to filter them or, you know, amplify them and things like this. Now, Information is always physical. Information has an inherently physical nature. It needs to be held by a physical system. And in the near totality of the computers that we use today, that physical system is a silicon transistor. A transistor, I'm not going to go into a whole lecture on on electronics here, but for the purpose of this conversation, let me just describe a transistor as a very small switch. It's like a switch that can be opened or closed, like the switch you use to turn on and off the light when you go to bed. Except instead of being a mechanical switch, it's an electronic switch where the ability of the electrical current to pass through the transistor is determined by the voltage on a electrode connected to the transistor. Okay. So with this physical object, the silicon transistor, that can be put in one of two, you know, very well distinguishable states: open, current doesn't flow, or closed, current does flow. You can encode a bit of classical information. And then by connecting these transistors together, you can make a processor, like a microprocessor in the computers we're using now, and then you can encode sequences of operations in that processor as you uh, wish. So this establishes what a normal computer is. Now, a quantum computer is also a computer. And there are exceptions, but we're not going to talk about them. Or maybe we will, but for the beginning, we won't talk about them. Usually, a quantum computer also encodes information 
in a binary form, zeros or ones. Except in order to hold that information, it uses quantum mechanical objects. And what constitutes zero or one in a quantum mechanical object is the state of the object. So to give an example, imagine you have, uh, again, in a semiconductor, two small islands where an electron can reside either on the left island or on the right island. Okay? So now you can imagine, okay, I can call zero when the electron is residing on the left island and one when the electron is residing on the right island. Okay? And so I could run a digital binary computer like this. Except because the electron is a quantum object, we are not confined to only the classical zero and one um, options. The electron is not obliged to choose between being on the left island or on the right island. Quantum mechanics allows the electron the possibility to spread out across both islands, to be in what we call a quantum superposition of two different places, which in the language that we've just established means being in a quantum superposition of being zero and one. Now, one thing I want to make absolutely clear, this is one of my most important uh, sort of passions as a, as a scientist, as a teacher, and as a communicator of science. I am very vocally against the uh, idea that quantum mechanics is counterintuitive. When someone tells you that something is counterintuitive, that statement is not a statement about that object. It's a statement about the quality of your intuition. Okay? What is intuition, after all? Intuition is the semi-unconscious organization of many experiences and patterns of experience. Right? So if you feel that something is warm, your intuition tells you that if you go closer, you'll burn yourself. Huh? Now, the problem with quantum mechanics is simply that we don't have the senses to develop an intuition for it. Okay? So if someone tells you, oh, quantum mechanics is counterintuitive, it's not about quantum mechanics. It's about you. You don't have the intuition because you have not evolved to have the senses to develop an intuition for quantum mechanics. But once you develop the tools, as in the instruments, the scientific instruments to access the quantum world, your intuition actually develops. So this was a very long-winded um, discussion, but what I wanted to get at is that when you think about the electron in those two islands, and you ask yourself, okay, what is the... What is the natural choice? Given, let's say, imagine those two islands are completely symmetric, okay? They're identical. There is no electric field in the system. There's just two islands. The electron can choose to be in one or the other. Which one will it choose? The left island or the right island? Well, there is nothing making the electron choose, right? The, the system is completely symmetric. So I will argue that the logical, intuitive solution is that the electron will choose both. It will spread out across both islands. So this is the way for me to say that I will not let anyone tell me that that quantum superposition is a weird counterintuitive thing. In a sense, it is the natural consequence of symmetry. Okay? A lot of the laws of nature are dictated by symmetry or breaking of symmetry. And so having a quantum system that can be in two places at the same time, or for example, a spin that is like a magnetic dipole that can point in two directions at the same time, is often the natural state of existence of system where the symmetry is preserved. 
Okay. So with this, we have established that you can encode digital information into a quantum system, and you can leave it at that. You can leave it at zeros and ones, but nature gives you a natural, intuitive, logical way to also have zeros and ones at the same time. Now, to really get to why a quantum computer is so radically different and so much more powerful than a, quant than a classical computer, you need to look at more quantum bits. I haven't introduced the term yet, but that quantum system that can be in zero or one or zero and one at the same time is called a qubit or quantum bit. Yeah? So one qubit by itself doesn't do very much, but let's say we have two qubits. Well, no, let, let's go back. Let's say we have two classical bits. Right? You have a really rudimentary computer like they had in you know, the, first, the first chips in, uh, in, uh, in the late 1940s. Let's say you have two transistors. So with two transistors, you have four possible choices. You have 0, 0, 0, 1, 1, 0, 1, 1. Yeah? Those choices are represented with two bits of information. So to tell you which one of those four options I am encoding in your classical computer, I only need to give you two bits of classical information, the value of the first bit and the value of the second bit, okay? Two bits. Now let's say I have two quantum bits. So again, this electron that can be in two places at the same time, left or right, but there's two of them. There's two pairs of ions. So I can have, again, 0, 0, 0, 1, 1, 0, 1, 1. But what I can also have is 0, 0, and 0, 1, or 0, 0, and 1, 0, or 0, 0, and 1, 1, and all the possible combinations in between. So the way we describe it in quantum mechanics is that we say there is a superposition of all the four possible options, 0, 0, 0, 1, 1, 0, 1, 1, with essentially what we call a, a coefficient. Imagine like the weight of those superpositions, right? So now in all, with this quantum, with this minuscule quantum computer made of two qubits, in order to specify what quantum information I have encoded in those two qubits, it's not enough to give you two bits of information. I need to give you four numbers. I need to give you the coefficient of all the four possible combinations that I'm able to make. Now let's make three qubits. Now I have eight different combinations, so I need to give you eight numbers, whereas the classical computer is just three bits. Now four qubits, 16 numbers. Five qubits, 32 numbers. 10 qubits, 1,024 numbers versus just 10 bits in the classical case. Let's say we go to 300 qubits. You know how it goes, right? It's the 2 to the power n. So 2 to the power 300 is an often quoted number. 2 to the power 300 is about the same number of as how many particles we have in the, in the known universe right? versus 300 bits in a really rudimentary early 1950s classical computer. So this is one way in which you understand the difference and the power of quantum computers. Now, this sounds amazing, but there's a caveat. All this information is not accessible to us, right? So when we go and read out what is the, the, the data encoded in our quantum computer, let's say we have a 300 qubit quantum computer, as per the example before. Okay? So I've done some calculation. There is an enormous amount of information crammed into this computational space that contains the equivalent of 2 to the power 300 classical bits of information. But if I want to go and find out 
what is the outcome of that calculation that I've made, I'm not going to find two to the 300 bits of information there. I will only find 300 bits of information, right? So one, I hope, illuminating way to think of a quantum computer is to think of it as an interferometer. Okay? So when we do computations on a quantum computer, we start to populate this, uh, it's called a Hilbert space, this enormous, exponentially large computational space. So you have to start thinking, you know, really try to imagine this space that has two to the power 300 dimensions, right? We live in a three-dimensional space. You know, some people can imagine a four-dimensional space. Now we have to imagine a two to the 300 dimensional space. And you can live in there. You can populate. You can push information in there. But once you try to bring that information back to us, mere humans who don't have a quantum brain, it needs to come back to the classical bits, right? You only get back your 300 classical bits of information. So um, this is, I'm probably already anticipating some questions that you may have before, but maybe you may have after, but the real challenge in quantum computing is to design algorithms, so software, that uses that exponentially large amount of information afforded by using quantum bits, but eventually converges back to give you an answer that can be encoded in the classical bits that come out. Right? This is not trivial. This is not trivial. And this is one of the reasons why, um, you know, we do have actually a, a remarkably large number of quantum algorithms, considering the fact that there isn't, there aren't that many really large-scale quantum computers to test these algorithms on in the practice. But people have, on a purely theoretical level, managed to find ways in which you could encode and manipulate quantum information that exploits this exponentially large computational space and then gives you back information in a classical useful form. An important and relevant concept uh, from the field of quantum mechanics is uh, the no-cloning theorem. Uh, the no-cloning theorem states that it is impossible uh, to create an independent and identical copy of uh, an unknown quantum state. Uh, this statement uh, has uh, profound implications uh, in the field of uh, quantum computing. Yes, um, it does. It means that you need to organize your information in a different way. So um, what this means is the following. If I have, for example, a quantum bit that is in an equal superposition of 0 and 1, there is no natural way for me to make, let's say, three, uh, two other identical copies of that. But what I can do is to make a quantum entangled state of three particles. So I'm going to try, in, it's difficult in words, it's easier with mathematics on a whiteboard, but I'm going to try to explain in words what the difference is. So the classical cloning would be if I have a quantum bit that is in the state 0 plus 1, I want to make three copies of that. 0 plus 1, 0 plus 1, 0 plus 1. That is not allowed. It's not possible. It can't be done. But what can be done is something that is subtly different, but profoundly different. I can make a superposition of 0, 0, 0 and 1, 1, 1. It's a different thing. The first example I gave you is what's called a separable state. So it describes three individual qubits, each one of them in a superposition state. But there is no, uh, but I can assign to each one of them its own individual state. I can say qubit number one is in the zero plus one state, 
Qubit number two is in the zero plus one state. Qubit number three is in the zero plus one state. Whereas the other option, zero, zero, zero plus one, 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 is what's called a maximally entangled state, where all I know is that the three qubits are in the same state. But I cannot assign to any of them a state of their own. There is no way to say qubit number one is pointing in this direction. It doesn't have a direction. It doesn't have an a, a state of its own. But I know that it's in the same state as the other two. That can be done. And so this is how you build redundancy and fault tolerance when you build practical quantum computers um, in a way that is similar but fundamentally different from what you do in classical computers. Right? The concept of uh, particle entanglement uh, is very interesting. Uh, it, it is very intriguing and it goes beyond uh, what we have briefly discussed. If we have two entangled particles and we send these two particles to two different locations, thousands or even millions of miles apart, when we read the state of one particle, we will immediately know the state of the other particle. This mechanism can be used for uh, communications uh, over large distances? Yes, that's right. This is how quantum communications work. One thing that's very important to explain before people start to you know, get strange ideas, and that is actually what, uh, what confused Einstein back in his days, the famous uh, Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen paradox. Um, there is no superluminal transmission of information by doing this. Okay? So you said correctly that if I create two entangled particles and I separate them out, and let's say, let's say we were able to actually meet in person somewhere, maybe halfway, I don't know, in Dubai, and then you flew back to... Uh, Ireland and I flew back to Australia and at some point at some you know time that we decided together you would open the box that contains your particle and you observe the state of your particle you would immediately know what is the state of my particle no matter how far away I am immediately with no delay but actually there is nothing strange about this we could do the exact same thing with a with a you know $10 bill, right? We could meet in Dubai at the airport. We take a $10 bill. We ask someone to cut it for us and put it in two envelopes. You go back to Ireland. I go back to Sydney. You open your envelope when you go back home and you will immediately know which half of the $10 bill I have in my pocket. <laughs> but that is completely useless. There is, no, there is no transmission of information between us because the correlation between our two pieces of the $10 bill was already there. You haven't learned anything by opening your envelope. So in order to use this property of, of deep quantum correlation between entangled particles for useful communications, you always need, in fact, a classical communication channel. Okay? So... Uh, the way you would do that, the simple way to describe it is that, let's say we start with our pair of entangled particles. And, um, and uh, there's a pair of entangled particles that's created at the same time. One is given to you and one is given to me. Okay? And then you want to send me a message. You want to send me one bit of information. And uh, let's say that these particles are spins, for example, so their quantum states are up or down, so it's easy to talk about that. Let's say you want to send me a spin up, okay? And we know that the particles, the entangled particles that each of, one, each, one, each of us received were created in the opposite state. So it's an entangled state where they point opposite. Now, you receive your particle, I receive my particle. Then you do what's called a parity measurement. So you don't actually measure the particle you received by itself. 
you set up a measurement where you just look for the correlation between the particle you received and the one you have in your hand. So the, let's say the one you have in your hand is a spin-up. And then you do a measurement that gives you as the outcome that the two particles you have are both spin-up. Okay. Now, what happened? Immediately as you do so, the particle I have in my hand is a spin down. Okay. But this doesn't tell me anything. This is exactly the same from my point of view up until this point. It's the same as tossing a coin. It's just a random number generator. And if somebody was trying to, uh, well, I mean, if somebody was trying to intercept the particles, they would actually destroy the entanglement, so everything would be lost. Now, in order for you to tell me that you had a spin-up, what you can do is to take the phone and say, hi, Andrea, my two particles are in the same state. So now, because I have a spin down, and I know that the particle you have is the opposite as mine, so it's a spin up, I know that the actual initial particle you had was also spin up. So by telling me that they are the same, and with the information that my particle is spin down, I know that you wanted to send me a spin up. But now imagine that somebody's tapping the telephone line between you and I. So they hear the phone call and they heard you say, oh, they're the same. What have they learned? Same to what? <laughs> right? They can't spy on us. That information is completely useless to a spy that is tapping our telephone line. But it's completely reliable between you and I. Right? But the important point is, the actual time it took for the information to go between you and I is the time it takes for the signal to go along the telephone line. It doesn't violate relativity, right? The moment my particle became a spin down was instantaneous as soon as you did your measurement. But that was not the moment when I learned anything. The moment I learned what state you were trying to give me was the moment I received your phone call. Two important operations uh, that uh, frequently happen in classical and conventional computers are uh, writing information to a storage medium and reading information from a storage medium. You mentioned the concept of qubit and uh, coefficients a few moments ago. Is it correct to say that reading and writing information to and from a qubit is in fact assigning and retrieving qubit coefficients? Yes, that's actually a good way to put it. Yes. So the way you will normally run a quantum computation, you will start from a very, very simple initial state. So 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0 everywhere. Just a, it's called a fiducial state, an easy one. And then performing a computation so, so you can think of that. Let's, let's talk again about the three qubit example, right? So with the three qubits, you have eight possible coefficients. So if you start from 0, 0, 0, it means that the coefficient of 0, 0, 0 is 1, and the coefficient of all the other combinations is 0. Okay? Now, as we start to do operations on this minuscule three-qubit quantum computer, we do operations whereby the coefficients change. Right? And we will try to do that in such a way that at the end of the computation, ideally, we'll get again our little register of quantum bits that has a coefficient of one and all the others are zero. So that when we read it, we know exactly there is one outcome. Yeah. That's not easy to do. That's actually not easy to engineer. It's a very challenging software design pro problem because it's completely different from the way you design software for classical computers. The constraints are different. Let us uh, try to further uh, understand uh, this term quantum information uh, that you used a few moments ago. 
Let us say we build a quantum computer that uses the spin of an electron to create qubits. So in this case, is the quantum information just the value of this quantum property, uh, which is a spin of the electron in this case, or uh, is the quantum information something different? Um, uh, is the quantum information more than this? Look, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a picture of this, which is, um, which is probably not entirely accurate, but it's not completely wrong either. Remember at the beginning when we talked about that enormous, exponentially large computational space that the quantum computer can go and explore and populate? Um, in some sense, you can think of the quantum information as the, as the volume inside of that space occupied by the state of your quantum computer. Okay? So, for example, a, if you just, you can, as you wish, use a quantum computer like a classical computer. Nothing stops you from just leaving zeros and ones and nothing else. But what that means is that you're only using a very, very thin slither of, of like, like a little thread inside of that enormous space. Whereas once you start making highly entangled states, it's as if you're, you're now using all the dimensions. You're, you're creating a much bigger volume in which your information resides. And the power of a quantum computer, to some extent, is related to its capacity to um, occupy all this enormous computational space. This is a delicate topic, but it's actually important because um, it, it gives you a sense of how challenging it actually is to really use all the power of a quantum computer, okay? Because one thing is to make 300 qubits, but in order to really use the two to the power 300 exponentially large computational power of that 300 qubit quantum computer, you must be able to explore and occupy all of the possible volume in that space, which means you must be able to create any entangled state of those 300 qubits. That's very hard to do. Entanglement is delicate, it's fragile, and so it often um, collapses and becomes restricted to smaller regions so that you could have a 300 qubit quantum computer, but its computational power is nowhere near two to the power 300. Because like the way I imagine it, it's kind of gets stuck in a corner of that space and is not able to occupy all the space available. And the classical computer is the extreme example of that where it's really stuck in a tiny, 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 tiny corner of that. This nicely leads us uh, to my next uh, question. Uh, we have looked at uh, some of the fundamental concepts of uh, quantum computing. Uh, these are interesting but uh, complex concepts. Now let us move on and discuss how we actually build quantum computers. We have been building digital computers for more than three quarters of a century. Uh, we have huge experience of building silicon-based uh, digital chips. Uh, we have developed tools and technologies to put millions of uh, transistors uh, in silicon-based uh, microprocessor. Your research uh, to build quantum computers focuses on single spin in silicon. Before we go into details, I am keen to ask this question. Are you and your team trying to use the existing knowledge and the existing tools and technologies for making silicon-based chips to develop quantum computers based on single spin in silicon? Uh, is this uh, correct to say so? It's absolutely correct. That is uh, one of the main motivations for us to 
develop silicon quantum computing hardware the way we are doing. Um, it's not the only one. So for reasons that really are completely unrelated to the reason why silicon is used for classical computers, it turns out that silicon is also a very good host for quantum information. And the reason for it actually has to do with uh, the nuclear isotopes of silicon. Silicon has three stable nuclear isotopes. So silicon is the element 14 in the periodic table. But like many elements, uh, there are different isotopes, meaning uh, different nuclei that have the same number of positive charges, but they have a different number of protons. And so the, the atomic weight is different. So the most abundant uh, isotope of silicon is the silicon 28, which has 14 protons, which give it the, 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 the charge, the 14 positive charges, and 14 neutrons. The total spin, which means the total magnetic dipole of this atom is zero. So silicon is a completely non-magnetic nucleus in the isotope 28. Same with the isotope 30. It has two more neutrons, but their spin cancels out. It has a 4.7% natural abundance of the isotope silicon 29, which has an odd number of nucleons, and so it cannot have a zero spin. So it has a spin of one half. Now, when you try to encode quantum information in the form of spins, inside of a material that itself contains a random positioning of spins, those random spins actually create noise and destroy your quantum information. But because silicon has such a high natural abundance of this isotope that has zero spin, and there are methods to even purify the silicon to eliminate to a very good degree those spin-carrying silicon-29 isotopes, if you then capture a spin inside of a silicon device, that spin is existing in what some colleagues of mine have called a semiconductor vacuum. So in fact, the physical system that my group uses to encode quantum information is a phosphorus atom, which really to a very good approximation is like hydrogen in vacuum. A phosphorus atom in silicon behaves like hydrogen in vacuum. Of course, not exactly that. Once you go and look at the details, there are, you know, there are deviations. But you can really think of phosphorus in silicon as a hydrogen atom that has a nuclear spin of one half, and it has an electron bound to the nucleus, which also has an electron spin of one half. So in fact, every uh, phosphorus atom is a system of two quantum bits. And so what my group has done is to encode quantum information in these phosphorus atoms, both in the electron and in the nucleus. And in fact, with the nucleus, we had a pretty extraordinary result a couple of years ago where we demonstrated that we can preserve quantum information in this nucleus for 35 seconds. Now, 35 seconds for a quantum system is an eternity. It's extremely long. And this is because of silicon. But then going back to your very, very uh, clever question, once you've decided that you want to you know, encode quantum information in a spin and you think a silicon is a good one, of course, I mean, I work in a university basic research lab, so we have some very advanced fabrication facilities and we are able to fabricate devices at the nanometer scale. But the reality is we are using, in a sense, the you know, university grade simplified version of the same fabrication protocols that are used in semiconductor foundries worth you know, tens of billions of dollars each that are the ones that mass produce the computer chips that everybody uses in their computers and mobile phones that contains billions of transistors fabricated at a similar scale, a scale of nanometers. But those are mass-produced and they can be sold, you know, for $100 in a shop. So really the long-term goal of, of my research, my, my job is to establish the basic quantum mechanical principles and modes of operation whereby quantum information can be manipulated inside of a silicon chip. But once my job is done, the next job 
is to manufacture this into something that actually has a benefit for, for humanity and society and science. And, and we don't need to reinvent the manufacturing for this. We'll have to adapt it. There are some, you know, some things need to be fine-tuned. We are doing things at a very, very challenging level, but we don't have to reinvent the wheel completely. And this is already happening. There are already efforts around the world to start to integrate the basic quantum science that people like me and other colleagues have developed over the last 15, 20 years and start to fabricate them with the same methods that are used in the commercial trillion-dollar worth semiconductor industry that makes the classical computers that we all use already. When we look at the pictures of uh, today's uh, quantum computers uh, that are being built and developed uh, in many research labs around the world, these quantum computers uh, seem large, uh, where many large instruments are connected uh, through cables and pipes. Now, to build a quantum computer, we have to work on a very small scale. We have to deal with the quantum scale entities. We have to maintain very low temperatures. We have to manage electromagnetic noise and other anomalies. Uh, what do you have to do to get to and work on such a small scale? Uh, what are the main challenges? Um... It's, it's actually not that complicated. Um, in some sense, in some sense, what makes it look complicated is the so far, let's call it artisanal way in which you know, researchers like myself and my colleagues operate in order to develop these prototypes. So you're correct. If you come to my laboratory, you see a big refrigerator, you see a whole rack of instruments all of this to control, you know, we now have three qubits. And you think, well, what are you going to do when you use, you know, when you want to make a billion qubits? Um, this is running in parallel. It's another reason, by the way, why it's interesting to use silicon. It's already happening. Not, we don't do it in my group, but some colleagues of mine are already starting to make silicon chips that already contain a lot of the electronics necessary to drive many, many qubits inside, again, a silicon chip. So eventually, our you know, long-term goal is to have a full integrated chip or perhaps multiple chips stacked close together where both the control electronics and the, let's say, qubit layer are integrated within silicon structures. Now, why can't I make the control electronics already? Well, because that's the job of a $10 billion silicon semiconductor manufacturer. I don't have that capacity in my lab. Right? But it doesn't mean it cannot be done. It just means it cannot be done by a university professor like myself. This is very important to remember. So what I do is that I buy these instruments that are actually overkill for what I need to do, but they're nice because they're very flexible. So they allow me to, you know, design the way I control the, the qubits and, you know, change the frequency, the power, which is what I need to do as I'm developing the hardware. But once the hardware has been, you know, understood and perfected, I don't need those racks of giant instruments. All of that can be done by a small integrated circuit if I know exactly what is the function that that integrated circuit needs to do. An interesting research development uh, that comes to my mind at this point is uh, when you were working on the control and detection of the spin of a nucleus, your team was initially using magnetic field. But then they found out that they could also use electric field for the control and detection of the spin of a nucleus. Now, the idea of using electric field for the control and detection of the spin of a nucleus was uh, presented about uh, 50 years ago. And it seems that your team actually proved uh, this idea. Uh, talk to us about uh, this breakthrough. Oh, yes, that's, uh, that was a really incredible uh, serendipity. So, yes, um, 
I'm almost ashamed to say this. I've been working on spinal resonance for the best part of 20 years. And I, I did not know that in the 1960s, there had been efforts to control nuclear spins using electric fields. They tried for about a decade. So the idea was proposed in 1961 by Nico Bloombergen, who then went on to win a Nobel Prize for his pioneering work in, in spin resonance and, and other techniques. Um, so he and many other colleagues uh, attempted to control nuclear spins with electric fields and did not succeed. It was, it's way too hard. It was, it was a hero experiment, right? And so then that whole topic was essentially forgotten. So when I started working on spin resonance in the early 2000s, it was essentially, you know, 30 years after this whole thing had been sort of buried and, you know, closed in a grave, right? So it never occurred to me to even look for it. In my group, we always designed and fabricated devices that were optimized to deliver oscillating magnetic fields to the spin. Except at some point, because of a project we had on the topic of quantum chaos that I hope we can come back to at some point, we wanted to make a really, really strong oscillating magnetic field. And to do that, you need to make a very thin wire that comes very close to the spin. And so we did that. But it turned out that the spin was behaving in a strange way. And it took us actually quite some time to understand what was going on. Until um, one of my students realized that what we were observing was consistent with the spin being driven by electric fields instead of magnetic fields. And then we had this eureka moment. We thought, ah, I think I know what happened. We blew up that little thin wire. So instead of being a wire, it became an open electrode. So instead of having a current flowing that produces a magnetic field, it was like a tip of an electrode that produced an electric field. So once we understood what was going on, we were able to you know, completely analyze the situation. We found out that we had accidentally rediscovered nuclear electric resonance. And there's also a very uh, curious, another serendipity. The paper was published in uh, Nature magazine on the 11th of March, 2020, which turns out was exactly the 100th birthday of Nico Bloomberg. Nico Bloomberg was born on the 11th of March, 1920. So did I say 1920? So paper was published in 2020. Nico Bloomberg was born in 1920. So the paper was published exactly on his 100th birthday. And so now we know that we can integrate nuclear spins, which are exceptionally good quantum bits, with purely electrical electronic devices. It's quite exciting. The real benefit of uh, using quantum computers can only take place uh, if we find innovative algorithms uh, that effectively use the exponentially large information space and processing power of uh, quantum computers. So. How are we progressing uh, in terms of uh, developing such algorithms and identifying uh, applications uh, of quantum computers? It's a very good question. So as I was alluding to at the beginning, it's actually quite incredible that we are where we are because um, at least the, the first developers of quantum algorithms such as uh, Shore and Grover, um, they had absolutely no hardware to try things on. You know, imagine trying to develop a computer code on pen and paper, not having a computer to try it on. Worse even, not, not, not ever having seen a computer to try it on. Imagine being that person who just cooks up an algorithm in their mind <laughs> without even having seen a quantum computer in their life. So that is absolutely incredible. It's absolute genius. Now, we are starting to have some small-scale quantum hardware, which is not yet um, useful to solve problems that are otherwise intractable by classical computers, at least not useful ones. But it is already useful to help 
quantum software developers to come up with algorithms. So a lot of the early applications of the very small scale quantum hardware that already exists is in fact in giving quantum software developers, quantum algorithm developers, a sort of playground in which they can test and develop applications for the various you know, uh, end users that they may be, which could be pharmaceutical companies that want to develop you know, new, new, uh, new drugs, new medicines. It could be financial institutions. There's a lot of interest from banks and investors in uh, portfolio optimization, how you optimize, how to uh, allocate resources given certain constraints and given certain options. Um, it could be used for chemistry, for example. There's a lot of interest in, in uh, catalysis and understanding microscopically uh, chemical reactions to make certain um, productions of chemicals more efficient. Uh, logistics. Um, and then, of course, basic science. Material science, for example. You know, a lot of the things that actually underpin much of our you know, daily life are at some deep level quantum mechanical. And it is far too computationally expensive to try and model and simulate them on a classical computer for the same reason I was explaining at the beginning, this exponential blow up of the computational complexity. So a quantum computer is, in a sense, the natural, you know, naturally born system created to represent in a controllable way the manner in which other quantum systems behave. So that once you get an insight into how those other quantum systems works, be it molecules, be it materials, be it you know, magnets, you can then engineer them and develop them in a way that would otherwise be really difficult or impossible. Another interesting aspect of quantum computing uh, that we keep hearing uh, in the media is that uh, when commercial quantum computers will arrive, existing encryption techniques will not work and we will have to develop new techniques to perform secure communication. Uh, what is uh, your take on this? That is correct. So the quantum algorithm to uh, decrypt classically encrypted information in the form of products of prime numbers uh, was one of the first ones to be developed in the mid-1990s by Peter Shore. And it really was the one that uh, started the great challenge and investment into quantum computing because it has you know, really serious and obvious implications for, uh, for security of information. There's some good news in there. Uh, quantum mechanics comes to the rescue. So we discussed before quantum communications where you can transmit uh, information in a, in a safe, secure way without resorting on classical encryption. The other thing that's happening is that um, classical um, encryption specialists are developing post-quantum encryption methods. So there is an effort in the classical computing world to develop new methods of encryption that are not easily attackable by quantum computers. So it's sort of a, you know, it's a race between quantum and classical, which sometimes has beneficial effects. So there has been a, a case, I'm, I'm not completely familiar with the details of it, but I know that there was a case of an algorithm where uh, some quantum software developers developed a quantum algorithm that would beat a classical algorithm at some calculation. And then the classical computer scientists looked at that and took inspiration from the quantum algorithm and came up with a new classical algorithm that beats the quantum one now, right? So this is called dequantizing a quantum algorithm. These things actually exist. So sometimes insights and ideas that are developed for quantum computers actually help out classical computers. At the end of the day, all we want is computers that are powerful and efficient and allow us to understand the world and design and improve our life as much as we can. So whether it's quantum or classical, who cares? You know? 
Another uh, fascinating area that you have been exploring for some time is uh, quantum chaos. Help us to unpack and understand the term quantum chaos and uh, what kind of research uh, is happening uh, in this field. So quantum chaos is a, is, a, is a field of research that I got into for really fundamental curiosity. And then, as is often the case, things that you think at the beginning are just purely curiosity-driven, they have no applications or use, turn out to be probably extremely useful. And again, they have a relevance to quantum information. But let me start from the beginning. So quantum chaos is the study of the of the quantum equivalent of systems that are classically chaotic. Okay? So the, major, the majority of classical dynamical systems are chaotic. It's the, it's the rule rather than the exception. You know, in, in, in high school physics or even university physics, you study all sorts of simple systems and it's only when you go to your later years at the university, if at all, that you learn about chaos. But those simple systems that you studied at the beginning are really very special cases. The majority of classical systems are chaotic. Chaotic means that they have an extreme sensitivity to perturbation and to the initial conditions. Okay? Um, this is something that confuses a lot of people and confused me even at the beginning as I was looking at this topic. Um, so in, in classical chaos, we have what's called the butterfly effect. You may have heard it in the popular media. Right? The, the, for example, our atmosphere is a chaotic system. When you look at the weather forecast, the weather forecast goes to about a week, and even so, you know, a week away, it's not particularly reliable. There's absolutely no way to make a weather forecast a month away. And that is not by lack of computational power. It's really because the dynamics of the gases in our atmosphere is chaotic. So even the tiniest perturbation will eventually grow up to create, you know, the butterfly effect is the idea that a butterfly in Brazil causes a hurricane in, in, in Florida or something. You know? um, now, naively, in quantum mechanics, you don't have that. In quantum mechanics, there is no uh, divergence of trajectories. But that is actually a misconception. It's a, it, it comes from a, an incorrect way to look at the dynamics of classical and quantum systems. The correct way to think of it is this. You have to imagine, remember at the beginning, we talked about this huge computational space in which a quantum, quantum computer exists, right? There is something similar. It's not the same kind of thing, but it's similar in a classical system. It's called the phase space. You have to imagine it's a space where all the axes contain the coordinates and the velocities of all the particles. It's a very large space. And you can look, for example, at uh, I know, a little puff of smoke as some volume in that space. Now, the smoke will fill up your room without you trying to do anything. You know, if you smoke a cigarette, eventually your room will be uniformly full of smoke. So you don't have to make an effort to take every particle of smoke and smear it uniformly across your room. The chaotic dynamics of the smoke will do that naturally. Now, is there an equivalent in quantum systems? Well, it turns out there is. It turns out there is. And that is, in fact, what uh, random quantum systems do to fill up their whole, their own quantum computational space. So remember at the beginning I was telling you to really use that exponential computational power of a quantum computer, you need to fill up the entire space. If you run your quantum computer as a chaotic system, it will do that by nature. You don't have to try too hard. This is, in fact, at some level, the essence of the famous Google quantum supremacy experiment. That's basically what they did. Because one thing is to make 53 qubits on a chip. Another thing is to use the entire computational space of those 53 qubits. 
But if you run the system as essentially a chaotic system, it will do it for free. So there is a profound correlation between the underlying chaotic dynamics of a, of a dynamical system and the ability to create large, powerful quantum entanglement. This is a fascinating research and your research work seems very interesting. Now, let us try to imagine the future. Early computers were large machines where we needed a room or, or perhaps a, a building to house these computers. However, now we have more processing power in our laptops, uh, in our mobile phones. Uh, do you think that quantum computers will evolve in a similar manner? And uh, in future, uh, we will have devices with uh, quantum chips uh, that we will carry around. And uh, quantum computers of future will be small and mobile devices. Uh, is uh, this uh, what you envisage? Look, I want to make a little objection to the premise of your question. It is true that our you know, laptops and mobile phones are extremely powerful. But in reality, when you think about where the computing power that you use every day actually is held, it's not in your little mobile phone or laptop. It's in a data center. Right? It's in the cloud. So we've kind of gone full circle there. We started with those big, you know, Valve computers in the 1930s. Then we had microelectronics. And now we've gone back to having still extremely powerful, but, you know, local electronic devices connecting to much more powerful data centers that we call, you know, the cloud. So the way at the moment we envisage quantum computers will be used is essentially as add-ons to the classical data centers. This is a question that I often get asked because the quantum hardware that I make requires cooling the chip to nearly absolute zero temperature. And people ask, ah, but how am I ever going to use something like this? I don't want to put a refrigerator like that in my pocket. You know, like that's impossible. And the answer is, well, you don't need to. You won't need to. This refrigerator, there will be, you know, dozens or hundreds of those refrigerator attached in the next room to the data center to which you are connected anyway. And you will just keep using your laptop and mobile phone to connect to that data center, except now that data center has capacities that did not exist before. Uh, we have been discussing various uh concepts relevant to quantum computers and we have touched upon uh, quantum chaos. Uh, is there anything else that you uh, suggest we should touch upon before uh, we close this uh, conversation? Um, one thing I would like to just discuss and remind to everyone, we talked about our serendipitous rediscovery of, of nuclear electric resonance. I think what's really important at this stage of development of quantum computing is to keep an open mind for curiosity-based research, right? We are at a very exciting time and space in quantum technologies where we are starting to translate the basic quantum science done by people like myself and many other colleagues into what is shaping up to be the computers of the future. This is extremely exciting, and I'm really happy that this is happening. But I think it's too soon for us to start to become too narrowly focused on the engineering problems alone. What is quite certainly going to happen is that there will be, for decades to come, a virtuous circle between curiosity-driven research and engineering, right? If you actually ask me what will be the first use of a medium-scale quantum computer, that will be to discover new science. A quantum computer will be the ultimate scientific discovery machine. So I am very happy and very supportive for my colleagues who are working on the engineering problem of scaling up a quantum computer. 
but we need to keep working together between the basic science and the engineering. The engineering will help the basic science getting more powerful, and the basic science will help the engineers making more powerful machines. Professor Andrea Morello, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for this uh, great conversation. Thank you and goodbye.